beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder tonight if any of you have ever been in a prison. The first time I went to a prison was a few years ago when I was studying at seminary in Grand Rapids. There was a prison close to the church there and about every month, once a month or so, some people went from the church and, and, and delivered a, a gospel message to the prisoners. And I went along in some of those times and I remember... I remember well, every time I went along, being so struck, so solemnized by the sounds of the doors being shut. You have to go through all kinds of doors, of course, to get into the particular you know, pod or unit that you're, we, we were assigned to. And, and these doors, of course, are all nowadays all electronically controlled by guards and they're sitting in their guard room. But even though they were electronically controlled, when they shut, if I remember right, they were sliding doors. When they shut, they made such a deafening sound, a, a slamming sound, that would echo for, for several seconds afterwards. It was an eerie sound. It was an awful sound. A sound that was, that was meant to forcefully impress on the prisoners the futility and the uselessness of trying either to deny or to escape their imprisonment. Well, beloved, the Bible's teaching about God's judgment is like, it's like those prison doors slamming shut one after another. It is meant to solemnize us. The Bible's teaching on God's judgment is meant to forcefully impress on us the futility, the uselessness of either trying to deny the condemnation that we deserve because of our sins or trying to escape it by our own way instead of God's. And we all need that. We all need that impression because denial of and self-made escapes from God's judgment is the natural tendency of the sinful, fallen nature in all of us. Especially when we have been painfully convicted by the reality of our sin, by the greatness of our depravity, those things which we, we learned a couple of weeks ago from Lord's Day 2 and 3. We might not say it out loud, but, but inwardly our our tendency is to protest against God's judgment. It's not fair for Him to demand something that's impossible for us to do in the first place. So we say. Or, or maybe we try and tell ourselves, God's not really serious. He won't really punish us for our failures. Or we try to convince ourselves that because God is, is merciful, because God is love, His judgment can't be that severe. The, the temptation, congregation, even for true believers, is always there to ignore or to soften or to twist God's judgment. But beloved, it is only when we see and understand the judgment of God rightly as Scripture teaches it that we learn to see how serious sin is. And it is only when we understand the judgment of God as Scripture teaches it that we truly begin to see our desperate need of the Savior. And it is only when we understand God's judgment rightly as Scripture teaches it that we turn from sin 
and we learn to flee and cling and become more and more devoted to the Savior whom God has provided. So what is the biblical teaching about God's judgment? Well, it is summarized for us both in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read, and also in Romans 2, verse 2. It's really captured in Paul's statement there in that verse that I have taken as the theme of this sermon. The judgment of God is according to truth. As we consider this important theme, the judgment of God is according to truth with God's help from His Word. We will use the three questions and answers of the Lord's Day 4 as a guide. And so we'll notice, first of all, that God's judgment is fair. Secondly, it is fixed. And thirdly, it is faithful. The judgment of God is fair, it is fixed, and it is faithful. It is according to truth. So first of all, the judgment of God is fair. That's important to know because our tendency, as, as I mentioned already, is, is, is to accuse God of not being fair. Question 9 of Lord's Day 4 puts it like this. Does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? In other words, isn't God unfair to demand obedience to his law since we are unable to keep it? Well, the answer of the catechism is clear. Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man by the instigation of the devil... And his own willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity or descendants of those divine gifts. What this is saying, congregation, is that God's judgment is not unfair. Rather, it is absolutely fair. Why? Well, first of all, because man's inability to keep God's law is not God's fault. Man's inability to keep God's law is not God's fault. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Lord's Day 3, so some of this may be familiar, but it's, it's good to review. As part of, of, of God's creation, man was very good. There was no deficiency, no lack of anything the first man and woman needed to obey God. Their will was, was perfectly in line with God's will. God made man able to keep his law. And he gave them every reason to keep it too. He made them, you see, not just as another part of God's good good creation. He made them as the very crown of his creation. He made them in his image. He gave them the knowledge of himself and of his will. He gave them true righteousness and holiness. He gave them paradise. He gave them dominion over over all creatures and all of creation. He gave them purpose. He gave them happiness. He gave them pleasure. He gave them each other. He gave them his care. He gave them himself. God made man able to keep his law and he gave man every reason to keep it. We learn all of this from many places in the Bible, especially Genesis 1 and 2, but also places like Ephesians 4, Acts 17, and many others. And the point is this. Man's inability, my inability, your inability by nature to keep God's law isn't God's fault. Has this sunk in? It needs to. 
It needs to sink into our hearts that God is not responsible for your sin. God is not responsible for your and my depravity. And God is not responsible for your inability to obey Him or for your inability by nature to respond to Him in faith. You cannot blame God. It's not His fault. And therefore He has every right to demand of you and of me and of all people the perfect obedience that He does even when we cannot do it. And He therefore also has every right to judge and to condemn us in and even for, yes, even for our condition of being unable to obey Him. The judgment of God, congregation, is just and fair. It is according to truth. You know, you, when you read that in, in, in Paul's letter, he's, he's contrasting the judgment of God there with the judgment of, of man. And he's saying the judgment of man is hypocritical, but God's judgment is not. It is according to truth, and that means it is fair. And he goes on, doesn't he, in, in those verses to talk about how God will render to every man according to his deeds. God is not unfair. He is absolutely fair. Have you come to admit that? Also about the judgment of God that you deserve. Maybe you say, it can't be completely our fault. I mean, if the devil hadn't been there, yes, the devil certainly had a role in man's fall. We saw that from Genesis 3 a couple of weeks ago. And the, the deceit and the trickery that the devil employed was evil. And God judged him for that. He cursed him. But the devil's role in man's fall, his role in our becoming unable to keep God's law congregation does not in any way give us any excuse for our depravity and inability to obey God. It does the exact opposite. It makes man inexcusable. Why? Because man, because Adam and Eve should not have been listening to the devil at all. He wasn't God. He didn't make them. He didn't give them paradise. He didn't. And yet they listened to him instead of to God who had given them everything. Inexcusable. It was inexcusable. Listening to the devil was inexcusable then and it's just as inexcusable now. But man's inability, our inability to keep God's law is, is inexcusable, not only in light of the, the fact that man listened to the devil instead of to God, but also in light of the fact that man's disobedience was deliberate. It was willful. The devil did not make Eve eat the fruit, and neither the devil nor Eve nor God made Adam eat the fruit. Well, that's what they wanted God to believe, didn't they? They tried the blame game. They tried those excuses, but they didn't work. Why not? Because their excuses were not according to truth. The truth was that man, by his own free will, chose to disobey God. Because God says to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. Do you hear it? The problem was not that Eve forced Adam to eat. 
The problem was that Adam listened, he hearkened to Eve. The problem was not that God put the tree, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. The problem was Adam's choice to eat of that tree when God had commanded him not to. Adam with Eve willfully disobeyed the God who had made them good. The God who had given them everything. It was totally inexcusable. Because of that willful, because of that inexcusable act, man, not just Adam and Eve, but every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every one of us here is totally unable in our sinful fallen nature to obey God. And the fault of that lies with man entirely. And that includes me. That includes you. Because Adam was not acting just as an individual when he ate the forbidden fruit. He was acting as our representative. He was acting as our head. We were connected to him so that his sin became our sin. We saw that last time from Romans 5. And what that means is this, that we are all to blame. We are all to blame here tonight for our inability to obey God perfectly. And we are inexcusable. The demands of God's law, as well as the penalties for not keeping his law, are fair. There is no unrighteousness with God, as Paul says in Romans 9. God is fair and just toward us. It's we who have been unfair. It's you, it's me, who have been unfair and unjust toward him. Have you ever been convicted of that? Have you ever recognized not just the reality of your sin, not just the the magnitude, the greatness of your depravity, but the absolute and inexcusable evil of your inability, the horrible unfairness and injustice your depravity shows toward God, the utter guilt of your sinfulness toward God, the God who is perfectly good, the God who is perfectly righteous and just. Beloved, your sinfulness and my sinfulness is not evidence of our being victims. It's evidence of our being criminals. Oh, we need to be brought to this point. Not just once, but again and again. So it's so e- you see, it's so easy to say and maybe to think, we don't say it out loud, but when we sin, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. You know what? You're right. We can't help it of ourselves. But that doesn't get us out of jail. That doesn't get us off the hook. That doesn't make God unfair in his demands, unfair in his judgment. Because the reason man can't help it is because man robbed himself and all his descendants of God's divine gifts. That's what Adam did in the garden. And we did it with him and in him. The fault is ours, not God's. So God's judgment, yes, his condemnation on all who sin, and that's every single one of us, every single one of us is a sinner. God's judgment is fair. We are masters of trying to escape. When the first door slams shut, we quickly turn and we run to another, don't we? God can't be that serious about punishing everyone. Can he? 
This brings us to our second point. The judgment of God is not only fair, it's also fixed. Question 10 of Lord's Day 4 asks the question this way, Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And the answer is another strong no. By no means. But he is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will, and will punish them in his just judgment temporally, meaning now in time, and eternally, as he has declared, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. God's judgment, this answer is telling us, is fixed. It is fixed, first of all, because it is grounded in God's terrible displeasure against sin. The Bible makes this clear in many places. But the passage which we read earlier from Romans 1 and 2 really really highlights this very clearly. It highlights the wrath of God, God's terrible displeasure against sin. In Romans 1 verse 18, Paul declares that the wrath of God is revealed. Literally, it's, he's saying it's, it's being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in the rest of the chapter, of course, we, we read that list of sins, that progression of sin. He begins with their failure to glorify God, their failure to be thankful to Him. And then he shows how that continued progression in sin is itself a result of God's wrath and judgment. Did you notice that? You notice that twice he says, God gave them up. And then once more he says, God gave them over. It's a sobering thing to realize, congregation. One of the ways God punishes sin in this life already and in this world is by giving sinners up to more sin. But it doesn't stop there. The judgment of God, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 32, for all who commit sin, including the ones which Paul had listed, the judgment of God is that they which commit such things are worthy of death. God is that terribly displeased and angry with sin. Oh, how dangerous it is to live in unrepented sin. And yet people do. Even knowing, as Paul says, the judgment of God. Is that what you're doing? Maybe you say, Pastor, God's judgment, that's for the world out there. I mean, I agree there are lots of bad people out there, but we're different. We are the church. We are God's people. We have God's word. We, he- we know the law. We hear it every Sunday. Oh, how easy it is, isn't it, for us to read Romans 1, read the list of sins in Romans 1, and recognize in those verses the world around us, and think that God's judgment surely doesn't apply to us. That's exactly how so many of the Jews thought in Paul's day. They thought God's judgment couldn't come upon them because they were God's people. They thought that God's favoring them with his law and with his covenant exempted them from God's judgment. They pointed fingers at the Gentiles around them. They condemned the world around them for its sins. And beloved, how often 
How often do we do the same? And I'm not saying it's wrong to point out the sins in the world. It's not wrong to lament and to grieve over the sins of, of abortion and of homosexuality and of, and of all the, the wickedness that is in the world around us. That's not wrong to do that. But if that's all we do, if all we do is pointing fingers, what does Paul say to such people in Romans 2 verse 1? Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Do you hear what God is saying to Paul? He's saying that we, that the Jews, that we who are part of God's covenant people today, we are no different from the world by nature. By nature, we do the same things. Now just think about it. If you have your Bibles open, just let your your eyes skim over that list of sins in, in the last part of Romans 1. Are they all really that unique to the world? Are you never unthankful? Are you never unloving, always full of natural affection to your to your spouse? to your children, to your siblings? Are you always forgiving? Does, does lust and envy never fill your heart? Children, are you never disobedient to your parents? Is there never any hatred of God, never any pride in your heart? We are sure, Paul says in verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. What that means is this. God is just as angry, just as terribly displeased with your and my sins, both our original sin and our actual sins, as he is with the sins of those in the world. Baptism doesn't change that. Church membership doesn't change that. God's many gifts to us don't change that. And thinkest thou this, Paul continues in verse 3, O man, O woman, O girl, O boy, O young person, whoever you are, who judges them which do such things and does those very same things, thinkest thou this, that you shall escape the judgment of God. Yes, God has given us much. Yes, we have been privileged to taste the good word of God. Yes, we have been privileged and blessed to receive the knowledge of the truth, to hear of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. But that doesn't mean, congregation, that you are exempt from judgment. That doesn't mean just by hearing all about this, that God turns a blind eye toward our sins. No, as verse 11 states, there is no respect of persons with God. He doesn't show partiality. The judgment of God is fixed on all who commit sin. The reason 
The reason that we are privileged, so privileged to hear and to know the goodness of God, to hear the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ proclaimed, the reason is not to make you and I comfortable in sin, but the reason is to lead us to repentance, to conversion, to faith in Jesus Christ alone. Congregation, are you converted? Are you all, all converted? Dear children, dear young people, are you converted? Answer that question. Because if you are not, if you are living in sin, or if you are living in complacency and of self-reliance and self-righteousness, well then, in view of all that God has done, in view of all the riches of his goodness in the gospel of Christ, I urge you, I plead with you as Peter pled with the people in Acts 3, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Don't you want that? It's the only way, beloved. God's judgment is fixed. And you say, I don't feel it. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want. You know what you're doing if that's your response. You're not only despising, you're not only making light of and even scorning the riches of God's goodness. But as Romans 2 verses 5 and 6 says, After or according to your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each man according to his deeds. Every day you continue, if this is you, every day you continue unconverted, you are adding, you are heaping up, as it were, more wrath, more of God's displeasure against you. And beloved, this is the Bible's teaching. I know, we, I know it's solemn, I know it's heavy, but it's the Bible's teaching, it's the truth of God. If you remain outside of Jesus Christ in the day of judgment, that wrath of God, that indignation of God that you have been storing up for yourself will be unleashed on you forever. God's judgment is fixed. It's grounded in God's terrible displeasure against sin, and it's sealed by God's curse. The Catechism answer quotes Paul's statement in Galatians 3, verse 10, when he says to those who thought that they could be justified, those who thought they could be declared righteous before God, and he's talking to the church. You know how easy it is as Christians even to begin to look to our own works, to our own righteousnesses. 
He says to them what God said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 27. Cursed. Under God's condemnation. That's what it means to be cursed. Is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law. The judgment of God, God's condemnation on sinners is according to truth, the unchangeable truth of God's word, a word that confirms that judgment by this curse. That means it is fixed. The curse, God's divine condemnation on sinners is not uh, on sin, is not a, a maybe, it's not a perhaps. No, God cannot and He will not let any sin, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, whether it's a big sin and a public sin, or whether it's a secret sin and a small sin, whether, whether it's orig- our original sins or our actual sins, He will not let any sin go unpunished. And so the second door by which we try to escape God's judgment slams shut. Do you hear the sound echoing? There's one more door that many people try. God's punishment can't be that bad. After all, God, God, the Bible says, God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. You're right, the Bible does say that. But His mercy, His love, His compassion does not and cannot lessen God's judgment. Because, as Paul says, the judgment of God is according to truth. Not just some truths, not just the truths that we would like to believe, but all truths. And what that means as we come now to our third point is this. The judgment of God is not only fair, it's not only fixed, it's also faithful. In answer to question 11, is not God then also merciful? The Catechism answers, God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The judgment of God is faithful, congregation. It is faithful to his mercy. God is indeed merciful. In Romans 2 verse 4, Paul speaks about that, doesn't he? He he speaks about the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. But he proclaims those attributes of God. He proclaims the mercy of God right in the middle of proclaiming God's just judgment. And and then if you look even further, out more, more into the context, you see that Paul is declaring God's justice, his, his, his judgment in the context of explaining our great need for the righteousness of God and God's merciful provision of that righteousness in the gospel. The point is, there is no contradiction and no tension in God between his mercy and his justice. God is one. He is both 100% just and he is both 100 and he's 100% merciful. He is faithful to himself. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 that God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that mean? It means that he cannot and he does not, he never does deny any 
one attribute in order to show another. So yes, God is merciful. And His mercy is faithful to His justice. It doesn't undo His justice. It doesn't eliminate His justice. And, and God, is, God is just. And His mercy does not deny His justice. Neither does His justice deny His mercy. In congregation, I know this is something that is hard for us to grasp. We cannot really fully grasp it. But it's not meant to be fully grasped. It's meant to make us bow. It's meant to make us worship. It's meant to make us realize. It's meant to make us, to, to solemnize us with the realization that God's judgment still stands. It is faithful to His mercy. And so the last door by which we try to escape slams shut just as much as the others did. Now I want you to consider with me where that leaves you by nature, where that leaves me by nature. Where does that leave every sinner left to himself? It leaves him, it leaves us, it leaves you in the prison of God's judgment. Beloved, this prison is no walk in the park. You know, sometimes we, I've heard that, that people say prisons are, are pretty easy these days. They're more like hotels than prisons. The prisoners get everything. Maybe they do. I'm, I'm not sure. I know the prison that I've been in, I would never want to be in for any length of time. But I am sure about this. I am sure that to be in the prison of God's judgment is an experience more awful than any of us can ever imagine. Why? Because God's judgment is faithful to His majesty. And that's a terrifying realization. Because There is no one and there is nothing who possesses more majesty than the Almighty God. His majesty is most high. He is the most high God. The one whom Isaiah saw sitting on a throne in Isaiah 6. High and lifted up with his train filling the temple. And before whom the seraphim covered themselves and cried out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the dreadful, the terrifying reality is that every sin that we commit is committed against this thrice holy, this infinitely majestic, this all glorious God. The God whom the Bible describes as a consuming fire. Because God's judgment is faithful to His majesty, it means that our sins must be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Love of the Catechism is not making that up. Everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell is the clear teaching of Scripture. We could look at many texts together to prove that, also in the Gospels, also from Jesus' own lips. But for now, 
I want you to just look with me at Romans 2 verse 9 and notice how Paul describes the experience of God's indignation and wrath. He describes it as this. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Tribulation and anguish. These words literally refer to an unrelenting pressure, unrelenting pressing down and constricting. Try to imagine experiencing that. Not just for a minute, not just for an hour, or a day, or a month, or a year, or even a decade or a century, but forever and ever and ever. And then imagine on top of that all the other images the Bible uses to describe how a place where the worm never dies, a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of unquenchable fire, the prison of God's judgment congregation is an awful place, a terrifying place to be. Because the judgment of God is faithful to His majesty. The judgment of God is according to truth. Beloved, this doctrine, the doctrine of God's judgment is a very serious matter. It is meant to sober us. It is meant to humble us. And it is meant, it is meant to shut off every door by which we so naturally try to escape God's judgment. Oh, I pray, I pray this evening that every one of us has heard those doors slamming shut. Because it is then Yes, it is then when we see the futility and the uselessness and the hopelessness of trying to deny his judgment or of trying to escape the condemnation we deserve by our own way. It is then that God shows us his way. You see, all the doors that we try have been slammed shut for this reason, so that we would see the open door, the door that dear brother and sister here in Christ the door that you and I are so prone to forget, the door, dear unconverted sinner here tonight, that maybe you have never noticed before. It is the door, the door that is open for our escape out of the prison of God's judgment because it is through that door that God came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he entered, he entered into that prison of God's judgment And he bore that judgment, that tribulation and anguish. He drank that cup of God's wrath in the place of sinners until he said, as he hung on the cross, it is finished. So that you and I do not need to remain in the prison. 
we can go free. It's the door of escape. And we hope to learn more of that in the coming weeks as we turn to the deliverance section in the catechism. But just for tonight, know this, that Christ has opened the way. And so, forsake, let us, congregation, forsake every way, every way that we try and seek, and let us trust in Jesus Christ alone, and cling to, and love him, and follow him with all our heart. Will you go? Will you come? Will you go through that door? And will you continue in devotion and in love to our great Savior? Amen. Amen. O Lord, you who are, as Paul says, the uncorruptible God, the one who is holy, 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 We thank you that the Bible reveals to us that the judgment of God is according to truth. So that we would forsake all denial and every self-made escape so that we would have our eyes turned upon Jesus. And upon the escape from God's wrath that he has provided because he bore that wrath. The infinite wrath of God in the place of sinners. Oh dear Lord, we pray you would wake, waken up those who are spiritually asleep they would be, have their eyes open to the danger they are in. That they would flee to the Savior. Lord, that there would be no one here, no one, who would one day be in that prison, who would one day be in hell. And Lord, increase, increase by this word the love and devotion of your people to yourself and to your son. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, let us sing Psalter 17, the first four verses of Psalter 17. <clears throat> 